I have the pleasure of reading the Bible for us this morning. Our passage is Romans chapter 7 verse 1 through to chapter 8 verse 2. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So then, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the Lord had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intending to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I expect um, I probably don't need to preach a sermon on that because I reckon you've got that straight. Is that right? Romans 7 is one of the uh, more notoriously challenging pieces of the book of Romans. Uh, It is a book that uh, is profound in how it actually addresses not only how we become a Christian, but how we live as Christians. Not only how we enter God's kingdom, but what life looks like as we continue to live within Christ's kingdom. Now, I want you to think this morning about stories where maybe you've decided one New Year's Eve that there's going to be a resolution and you're going to change something about you. Maybe perhaps you've, uh, you've been in a relationship, you've been engaged or married married, and uh, you actually find that the other person uh, gives you an ultimatum. This has to change. I don't know. Maybe that is you. Maybe uh, you've, you've found something in yourself that you look at and think, I would love that to be different. New Year's resolutions are Uh, you know, they're almost proverbial for their failure, aren't they? But every now and again, we come across transformation stories. So you might remember Jeff Hugel, it's Olympic time. Jeff Hugel, the Australian gold medal swimmer, making his comeback, going from 138 kilos, six beers and pizza to a lean 93, still didn't win the gold medal. Uh, But I have to say, even as challenging as that is, compared to actually major character change, major alteration of life, losing weight is easy. Think about your story of transformation. Maybe think about the thing that has defeated you again and again and again. You know the feeling of frustration? You know the kind of despair when you... Perhaps it is weight loss. Perhaps that you do stand on those scales and go, oh, for goodness sake, nothing changes. And as Christians, we should feel this. Not necessarily about weight loss, but there is a tension. There is a tension built into the Christian life. Who we are called to be, who we are made to be, who we are saved in order that we might be in Christ and where we are right now. And this is what Paul deals with in Romans chapter 7. This is the Christian life, lived between conversion and glory. Christian faith, following Christ, is meant to transform us. It's meant to make us different. The gospel is meant to remake us. How does it do it? How does it do it? This is what Paul is talking about as he's taking us through Romans chapter 5 through to Romans chapter 8. And we are in the midst of this teaching on this topic. How does the gospel change us? Now, uh, we need to recognise that in Paul's letter to the Romans, he didn't write a nice little heading saying, 
if you've got my Bible, released from the law, bound to Christ, and a big seven and verses and chapters, they weren't there. This is part of the ongoing argument, and he is moving quite seamlessly from chapter 6 through to chapter 7. So we don't need to... uh, We don't need to scrub out the headings, but we need to be aware that sometimes they unnecessarily divide things. And so we need to see that this argument of Romans 7 is actually part of how he's talking about a Christian's growth in Christ, a Christian's attitude to sin and to the law. But before we dig into chapter 7, I just want to point out some of the fundamental differences that we have that makes Christianity different from any other religion. Religion at its base level, and I've said this before so it'll be familiar, religion says if you perform, if you do the right stuff, if you tick the right boxes, then you will be accepted. And so (coughs) if you're a Muslim... There are five pillars of Islam and you are expected to do them. And that is righteousness for the Muslim. For the Buddhist, I believe there is the eightfold path. Uh, There are various different systems. And we're not just talking, we're not just talking other religions. Some people will turn Christianity into a religion. It's about doing all the right things. It's about being baptised into the right church. It's about doing certain rituals and so forth. We can turn Christianity into a religion as well. But it's not just religion. It's not just things that would be recognised as religion. came across this this week. Kate Campbell came up sixth in the world. And she said in an interview afterwards, I have always said that I don't need a gold medal to have self-worth. Well, thank goodness for that, because most of us here, if not all of us here, don't have gold medals. She's only sixth in the world. And I don't want to have a dig at Kate Campbell. I recognise the pain it must be to fall short of the goal that you have been striving for. But this is the language of worship. My life has value. My life has meaning if I have that medal. That's being put to the test, she says, at the moment. Maybe for us it's not Olympic swimming. Maybe it's the gods of material success. Maybe it's the gods of family joy. As you look around, the grandchildren or the children, the relationship, the husband, the wife, the spouse... Maybe it's, maybe it's those gods. And Kate Campbell reveals to us that they are brutal in their demands. Maybe it's the gods of academic success. I had one of my children who is used to performing reasonably well explain to me the grief that they feel at getting a B. Put it into perspective. Do you feel a similar grief? What is it that you strive for? What is it that you have as your goal? Life has meaning. Life has value. 
if I have this. Because that's a religion. Maybe it's the God of beauty. Maybe it's the God of whatever. But all of these things say, if you perform, you will be accepted. And Kate Campbell is struggling. She's only sixth in the world. Her God demands number one. How's Christianity different? Jesus says, you are accepted. So you may now perform. It turns it on its head. Our performance flows out of our acceptance and our acceptance has nothing to do with our performance. Our acceptance has everything to do with grace in Christ. And this is what the Bible calls this justification, that Jesus died and rose again and through faith in him, through his work for us, we can be declared right with God. That is justification. That is what is so radical about the Christian faith. Because justification, our standing before God, depends wholly on Christ's work. It is God's work done for us, and it deals with the guilt of our sin. That's the foundation. That is chapters 1 to 4 of the book of Romans, particularly the end of chapter 3. But now in 5 to 8, he's talking about another big word ending in shun, sanctification. And this is our growth in Christ. This is our transformation into Christ-likeness, our growth in holiness. And it is God's work by his spirit in us, based on his work for us in Christ, but it deals with the stain of our sin. Justification deals with the guilt. Sanctification deals with sin's stain. And how do we work? How does this work? How do we grow in this? How do we make progress? How does this sanctification hit the ground in our life? And Paul in chapter 7 here is dealing with the issue that you and I may be very tempted to fall into. We know the gospel. We know justification and sanctification. Maybe we don't know those terms. But you know the ideas. You know it's all of grace. It's the work of Jesus for us. How do we grow in Christ? The temptation for us is to grow or try to grow by law. We know we can't get in by law, but we try to stay in, to grow by law. And Romans 7 tells us it will never work. It will never work. Okay, we're going to actually unpack Romans 7 backwards. So if you want the sermon the right way around, uh, just turn the CD over and play it backwards and see what happens. Um, I'm doing that because Paul actually goes on a massive tangent uh, in this chapter and he gives us the answer first and then explains why he needs to give us that answer at the end. And I think it makes kind of sense, you can tell me afterwards whether it does, uh, if we actually deal with the issues that he's raising and then the answer uh, there at the end. We've got to remember as well 
uh, that Romans 8 is straight after Romans 7. And Romans 8 is the answer unpacked. Romans 8 is the answer blown large. So you need to come back for the next three weeks. Romans 8 is coming and it is magnificent. Paul deals with the traitor that is within. He actually tells us in verse... uh, I've left something out, so let's just go back. Okay, I'm going to read here from Romans uh, 7 verses 18 to 19. Paul says here, he says, I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. That is my, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Paul is talking about a fundamental conflict. The stuff he doesn't want to do, the stuff he knows is against what God wants, he does. And the stuff that he knows God wants him to do, he doesn't do. There is a fundamental conflict. The desire to do God's will is there. But in and of himself, the capacity to do it is not. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly that in the act of justification, in the act of the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection, that sin's penalty was paid, sin's power is broken, that the Christian has died in Christ, been set free from sin, but sin remains. Let me give you an illustration. When was the Second World War won? You could make an argument to say that the Second World War was won as the Allies landed at Dunkirk, D-Day, June 16, 1944. From that time on, the Allies rolled the Nazi war machine back across Europe, but it was not for over another year before the actual conflict ceased. The Christian lives with the ongoing warfare between D-Day and VE Day, victory in Europe. The battle is won. Christ has done it. The victory is guaranteed, but we fight until Christ returns. We have this ongoing conflict. So you see it there in verse 22 and verse 23. His inner being, he delights in God's law. There's a part of him, this is Paul the Christian, there's a part of him who says, I love God's law. A non-Christian will not say that. But he sees another law at work in him, another principle waging war against the law of the mind and making prisoner of the law of sin at work with me. He's got on one part of him, a part that says, I love God's law, it's great. And another part of him that opposes that. There is a war going on in Paul's soul. Robert Louis Stevenson captured this brilliantly in his book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you've never read it, it's only a small book and it is a great book to read. It is really, really insightful. You may not be familiar with the story, only in general terms perhaps. Dr. Jekyll is a good guy. And he's a moral man, but he's aware that humanity's true nature is not one, but two. He deals with his darker side, and so uh, he makes a potion, 
that divides his good nature from his bad. And as he drinks it, he converts into Mr. Hyde, a character hideous and hidden, that Louis Stevenson describes as having every act and thought centred on himself. He is a vile, evil character who, as the story progresses, uh, indulges every passion leading to murder. This division of the good from the evil, Louis Stevenson, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag, shows us it doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, Mr Hyde gets control and Jekyll commits suicide. This dual nature, that war between the good and the evil, between the one who has been set free from sin and desires to live for God and the sinful nature that continues. That's something that I think Louis Stevenson has captured and I think it's something that most of us actually know, if not all of us actually know. The good that we want to do, we don't do. It doesn't mean we never do anything good. Paul's not saying that. He's using rhetorical language here. But he's saying there is this traitor within. And we cannot be naive. We cannot be naive. Sin is not our master, but it is not dead. The victory has been won, but the battle must still be fought. It is fought knowing that Christ has won. It is fought by his power, assured of his victory, but it must be fought. And in each of us, there remains a great capacity for evil. The Nazis were husbands, fathers. They had people that they loved who loved them. Capacity for great evil. There have been Christian leaders publicly falling from faith, from grace, from their standing, from their moral standing. A while ago, there was a very significant Christian leader in the States who was sleeping with male prostitutes with whom he was doing drugs. Don't think it could never happen to you. The wrong circumstances could bring sin to birth in your life in a hideous way. And as Christians, we are naive. If the Allies landed and said, well, right, done it, what would have happened? The Nazi war machine would have rolled back over them. Christian, do not let your guard down. The battle is won, but the war still rages. There is a conflict. It's captured there. This is uh, John Wayne Gacy Jr. He was a serial killer. 30 people stashed underneath his floorboards. He was a clown who used to volunteer in local schools. Hidden, hidden evil. Suffren Stevens wrote a song about him. And he had this line, this incredible self-awareness. And he says, in my best behaviour, I am just like him. 
look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. He recognizes that the potential for great evil, not that we might become serial killers, but the potential for great evil remains. Robert Duvall uh, starred and directed in a movie called The Apostle. It's a very interesting movie, a movie about a Baptist revivalist preacher who murders his wife's lover and then goes on to start a revival in a local town, re-energizing, reinvigorating that town in the deep south. The, The movie portrays him as a great man of God but incredibly conflicted. We have that same conflict. Do we despair? No. The lack of conflict, can I say, is a problem. The fact that we have this battle is an evidence of God's work of grace in us, that this enemy within is being fought, that his spirit is at work. Cranfield says it like this. He says, the more seriously a Christian strives to live from grace and submit to the discipline of the gospel, the more sensitive he come, becomes to the fact of his continuing, continuing sinfulness. The more progress you make in grace, the more aware you become of your need of it. The enemy is within. What's the right tool to put him down? Well, the wrong tool first. Paul argues here that the law will never subjugate this enemy. He says in verse 9, he says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, spring sprang to life and I died. Now, when was Paul alive apart from the law? Being a good Jew, raised in a religious household, he would have always been aware of the law. So what I think he's talking about here is his subjective experience. That subjective experience of actually thinking everything's okay before you get the results that tell you that everything is not okay. It's the cancer patient pre-diagnosis. It's thinking everything's fine because you live in ignorance. I have a member of my family who does not want to go to the dentist. Nothing against dentists, but she does not want to hear bad news. And so I just won't go and they won't tell me and that makes it all okay, does it? I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I was not aware that there was an issue. But then the law came and I knew there was. He tells us in verse 7, is the law sin? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not been for the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said You shall not covet. The law exposes sin. It's like a test. You get an F. The problem's not the test. The problem's your lack of knowledge. It's like when you've been driving along, happily ignorant, and then you get the letter in the mail with that horrible little photo and that please make a kind donation to the South Australian government. You thought you were okay until the letter arrived. The law exposes sin. The speed camera, the test, reveal your shortcomings. The problem's actually not the policeman with the speed camera. The problem's not the test. 
The problem is not the MRI. The problem is actually what's happening in you. And Paul here is saying, the law is never meant to save us. The law diagnoses the problem. And actually, he says it makes the problem worse. Sin, he says in verse 8, seizing the opportunity by the commandment uh, produced in me every kind of coveting. You know this, don't you? When you see this sign, what do you just want to do? You really do, don't you? It's like when you're a kid and you know that your brother or your sister is really, really annoyed by something in particular. I know with my kids there's certain music that I can play that will just get them going. If I want to annoy my eldest, I put Taylor Swift on and I dance around and sing at the top of my voice. It's quite a sight, I'll tell you that. But there is a perverse delight that I get as her father to annoying her. Okay. But sin does that on a serious level. I found this. Do not touch. What what I read, touch when no one is looking. You know you want to. But sin is actually revealed and actually intensified. One Christian writer talks about it as we want to be God. We don't want God telling us this is wrong. And so actually flaunting the rules, going against the law, is actually us asserting that we want to be God. But if our consciences are tender, if the spirit is at work and we feel that conflict, if we look to the law, what do we feel? We feel guilt, don't we? We feel guilt. And what's the natural response? The natural response is, I'll try harder. I'll do better next time. When Dr. Jekyll became aware of Mr. Hyde's evil, he sought to atone by his good deeds. If we're living by law, we will seek to kind of try to balance the scales. But Jesus tells us that is living under a yoke that is heavy and burdensome and weariness. And that's not what he saved us for. The law is the wrong tool. We're not Jewish, so we probably don't seek to put the dietary laws or the religious uh, observances into play, but we have our own laws, don't we? We have the laws of the quiet times, the laws of church attendance, the laws of generosity, the laws of evangelism, the laws of whatever it is. And when we can tick the box, we feel better. But when we come up short, we feel guilt and we try harder. It's why some people find, you find that hyper-religious person who has no joy, no assurance. They're distinctly unpleasant because they are consumed by this drive to either be good enough and succeed, which makes them proud, or crushed by the burden that they bear. The law shows the problem. It's the wrong tool. So what's the right one? Now, can I say... Romans 8 unpacks this in great detail, so we will come back to it. The right one is there at the start of chapter 7. He's actually said, you have died to your old husband. 
You have died to your old husband, the law, and you have now remarried. And you've remarried Christ. So the law has no hold on you. The law is not there as your husband. You have no bound, you're not bound to that law. You are bound to Christ. You are married to him. Verse 4. My brothers and sisters, you died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. He's been arguing this all the way through chapter 6. What did he say at the last, we looked at last week? He said, you're not a slave to sin, you're a slave to God. What did he say at the start of chapter 6? He said, you died with Christ. The end of chapter 5, you're not in Adam, you're in Jesus. You're in Jesus. And here he uses another illustration. You're not married to the law. The law has no claim because you died with Christ. And now you live in the law. Live in in Christ. You belong to another. Jerry Bridges says it like this. He said, Nothing so motivates us to deal with our sin in our lives as does the understanding and application of the two truths that our sins are forgiven and the dominion of sin is broken because of our union with Christ. Actually, not just knowing justification up here, but actually knowing it down here. Knowing that all those good things that you've turned into God things, law things, they are good things. But if you didn't read your Bible yesterday, it's good to read your Bible. But you are just as saved today as you were the day before. Because your standing with God does not depend upon your performance. Your performance flows out of the fact that you are married to Christ. That you have someone who loved you, who died for you who rose again, that you might be set free to serve. You don't have to earn that favour. That's what dying to the law means. The law condemns us. The law gives us guilt. But through Christ, that penalty has been paid. The law has no claim on us. There is no one who is going to say, what have you done to be right with God? The only answer is, is what has God done that you might be right with him? That's how it works. But as Christians, we can sometimes smuggle law back in and we live under the burden. The burden of seeking to be good enough. But God has set you free. God has set you free. It doesn't mean that we're lawless, but it means that our fruit are the product of his grace. They, yes, they bring him delight, but they don't earn merit. We serve, we strive because of his love for us. So what does it mean to live free? It's not trying harder. It's not burdening yourself with laws. 
Because laws are all about self-salvation. Let me pick on one thing. Quiet times. I have told you again and again and again and again and again over nine years that if you want to grow in Christ, you need to be in the Word. You need to be spending time in prayerful reflection on what God has done. And you might have listened to me and I might have listened to me and said, I've got to be in the Word. And so I'm going to read every single day. It's a great thing. But we can turn it into a burden. And when we fail, we feel guilt. But now, if you see Paul's argument, he says the answer isn't law. The answer is to see that we now have the privilege. We now have been set free so that we can. And what a joy that we have, as Peter saw, the words of eternal life. So why wouldn't you read them? What great delight when the one who loves you more than any other says, I want to spend time with you. Why would you say, oh, do I have to? We can. We can. It's like the great picture. It's just come to me from a sermon Simon preached a while ago. You know of JFK and the the desk? And there's his kid playing underneath. He has access into the Oval Office, not to see the president, but to see his father, who will never turn him away. Hebrews says we have access through faith to the throne of grace. Why would we then turn that into a law that says, I must access the throne of grace? We can, and it's ours. Brothers and sisters, we need to let the wonder of grace capture our heart. We need to go back to the fact that we have been married to Christ. He is our spouse, and our wedding day was the day he died and rose again. Brothers and sisters, what wonders of the gospel. This is the one who, as Ephesians 5 tells us, cleansed us through washing of the word to present us radiant, blameless. This is the one whose spirit has poured out his love into our hearts. And Romans 8 will teach us, with our hearts cries, Abba, Father, Not our master, but our husband. But as Christians, the conflict continues. And we should know the conflict. We should acknowledge the conflict. We should let sin break our hearts, but never let it break our hope. We should cry out with Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me? Praise be to God who has. We recognize that tension. We fight that battle. We live free because we know the victory has been won and it is ours in Christ. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. More next week and the week after.
and the week after. Let's pray. Father, we all feel the battle. We all know the tension. We all know that war where the sinful nature defeated but still there, fighting that war against, against our souls. Father, help us to hate sin. Help us to love you. And as we love you, help us to see the wonderful freedom that you have given us. Not that we might try harder, but that we might live free. Not that we must, but that we can And Father, we pray that we would grow ever deeper into your grace. That more and more, it would amaze us, astound us, set our hearts on fire. Giving us joy instead of guilt. Reassuring us with grace instead of condemning us with law. Father, we thank you that your law does reveal our sin. But we thank you that the gospel has dealt with that once for all. And Father, we do pray that you would help us by your spirit to live lives truly free in service of the one who loves us so much that he died and rose again. And Father, we pray this in his most precious name. Amen.